0: The Book of Acts is the story of how the witness of Jesus, the Messiah, made its way from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the earth. But we would be deficient if we just read these individual stories as disconnected events. Luke, the author, has organized these episodes so there are hidden treasures throughout the narrative. Welcome to Episode 42 introduction to the book of Acts. Well, we are diving into a new book study. And to be honest, I've not taught all the way through the book of Acts before outside of a New Testament survey course. So this is really going to be fun. And just like our walk through John, I'll try and attack this progressively through the book. I anticipate it will be mostly chapter by chapter, but I may slow down or really speed up depending on the content and on my schedule. So my schedule, (laughs) what do I mean by that? This is a great time for a book update. And I think I've mentioned it on previous episodes, the fact that I've written a book on biblical rest. And earlier this year I found a publisher and we are progressing through the publishing process. But because this is my first time through, I'm honestly not exactly sure how fast or slow this whole thing will happen. So, so far in the first four months of the year, we have landed on a cover design. And just this last week, I finished up the final polishing of the manuscript with my editor. And by the way, if you're at all interested in seeing the book cover and finding out a little more about this project of mine, you can see it at my book site, the RethinkingRest.com. And when you get there, you just need to click on the book tab. And I've even got a snippet preview from chapter one, so you can read through about 10 pages of chapter one. The publishing process is happening, and I am largely not in any type of control of that timing. So when the book is published and ultimately launches... I'm going to want to highlight that here on the podcast. So that may change how fast or slow we work through the book of Acts. And this study of Acts is not going to be a typical Acts study, but that should go without being said on this podcast. Those of you that have listened to the recent episodes of the Rethinking Babel Project, you know that I'm intrigued with the biblical records regarding the gifts of speaking in tongues and interpretation. And you might also remember that I'm not coming at this from any of the modern day perspectives. I'm looking at it as a biblical theology. A theme that begins early in the book of Genesis and finishes in the book of Revelation. But it's the book of Acts where we have several passages that speak directly or indirectly to the topic. And since the next book that I'm working on is Rethinking Babel, I'll be using our study here in the book of Acts as a chance to study and outline part of that project. So there may be gaps along the way, places where you'd want me to slow down that I'm just going to maybe even skip over. And so like our study through the book of John, you shouldn't expect me to comment on everything that's in the text. There are lots of good studies out there that do that for this particular book, the book of Acts. And as I always do, I'll be focusing on the things that might cause you to rethink what you thought you already knew about the book of Acts. So when I teach a Bible survey course, I usually begin by spending some time talking about the author and possible dates for when this material was written. And that information is very important for the book of Acts for a few reasons. First, I should probably mention this, and you probably already know that there's a relationship between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke is the author of both. And they were written as a diptych, which is a dual volume account of a wise teacher and his followers. This is something from their culture that happened oftentimes. People would write the first volume talking about what happened when that teacher was around and what he taught, and then a second volume after that teacher had gone and his followers were continuing his work. And so Luke, along those lines in that cultural setting, writes a two-volume set that follows that template. And it's important to understand that both of those books were written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The whole book is written while the temple ministry is still functioning. So this book tells a transitional story that takes place in the liminal space between two covenants. Some readers have the perspective that our modern-day goal should be to go back to the way the church functioned in the book of Acts. Like, everything we read there is some sort of prescription for how to do church. But as a whole, I think that's the wrong perspective. It's the wrong way to approach this particular narrative. The transition that we see happening in the book of Acts, it was largely a one-generation event that concluded with the official ending of the temple ministry in 70 AD. Because after that point, believers were no longer able to worship through Old Covenant means. Every one of the Old Testament saints, by that point, had either died in their faith, looking for a promised Messiah because they hadn't heard about Jesus, or they had been told about Jesus and transferred their existing faith to him. And along the way, there were a bunch of new converts They had a brand new faith as well. But that process, the one of transferring the faith of the Old Testament saints to the actual person of Jesus, the Messiah in which they already believed, that would have taken a whole generation. And I think that's the major reason why the temple was allowed to stand and function for nearly 40 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That process took an entire generation. And it's the transition that we read about in the book of Acts. So when we read the book of Acts as a story of evangelism, in other words, the only thing we think is happening is converting unbelievers to faith, I think we miss the main point of the book. Luke tells the story of this transition between the covenants through both of his books, and it makes up more than 25% of the New Testament. So the way I'm going to approach the book of Acts is that this book is first and foremost descriptive of a time and events that were unique to time in history. There were true believers in God who had never heard about Jesus that were already saved. And interestingly enough, during this time, there were believers in Jesus who also gave offerings at the temple altar completed religious vows, and even received circumcision as part of the Old Covenant Temple administration. If our perspective going into the book of Acts is that it is largely prescriptive, we will quickly begin to take those well-rounded stories out of their original context and attempt to shove them into the square holes that our modern context has created. They don't fit, and they were never Meant to fit. The other reason talking about Luke, the author, and the timing of the writing of this book is important is because of the relationship that this book has with 1 Corinthians. Again, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that there's only a few places in the New Testament that even speak to the spiritual gift of interpretation and speaking in tongues. And those instances, the reliable ones, are only found in this book, Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And although you may be tempted to think that just because 1 Corinthians comes after Acts in your Bible, you might come to the conclusion that it was also written after the book of Acts, but that's not the case. As we march through this book, what I will point out is that the book of Acts was likely written after the book of 1 Corinthians. Even though it precedes it in our modern Bibles, when Luke sat down and decided to include instances of people speaking in tongues, the letter that Paul had written to the church in Corinth regarding the abuse of speaking in tongues had already been written. And I think we read those the other way around. I think we think Luke is writing first and gives his description of tongues. And then later, Paul goes into more detail about that spiritual gift. And I think if we read it that way, some people have come to the conclusion that what Paul is doing is describing different instances or types of tongue speaking. But Paul had already written that letter first. 1 Corinthians 12-14 through already existed. Luke was familiar with what Paul had written in that book, and then Luke decides to talk about speaking in tongues. And interestingly enough, he doesn't choose to go into more detail or describe how each of these instances that we see in the book of Acts are different types of that gift. He just leaves it as one gift. Well, we'll take a look at that context in more detail as we walk through the book. And we will also see that Luke is accomplishing so much thematically in his book. And it's easy to miss if we are hyper-focused on trying to apply this book as only prescriptive for our day and not just descriptive of a certain time in history. So at the beginning of the book of Acts, it's kind of interesting. Jesus makes a little appearance here at the beginning. Some of the other gospels finish with his ascension, and he's already departed. But Luke includes that information here at the beginning of his second book. And it's near the end of that interaction with Jesus, where there's a statement made that some people see as kind of an outline for the book of Acts. It's here in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1. He said to them, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They had asked him if he was restoring the kingdom to Israel right now. And Jesus' response is the equivalent of that's kind of above your pay grade. But Jesus says this in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So as I said before, it's this verse that is often referenced as a type of outline for the entire book. Uh, The progression begins in Jerusalem, then moves to all Judea, which is the bigger southern region of Israel, which includes Jerusalem, by the way. And then Samaria is mentioned, which in Jesus' day was the midsection of the country. It was just north of Judea, and it separated the southern region from Galilee in the north. Then the verse, verse 8, describes the remotest part of the earth. So it's that progression. The spread of the news will begin in Jerusalem, make its way to the whole southern region, and then make its way north, and then to the rest of the world. And scholars have noticed that this is the general progression of the narrative. First few chapters focus on Jerusalem. And then when Stephen is put to death in chapter 7, the focus moves immediately in chapter 8 to Samaria. Interesting. And there are three road narratives that take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth directly following that. So what do I mean by road narratives? That might sound kind of strange. There are three stories right after the progression of Judea to Samaria. And these three stories involve people traveling on roads. That's, it's as simple as that. <laughs> and each of these stories focuses on spreading the news of Jesus to people That otherwise weren't familiar with the significance of his ministry. It's the spread of the witness. So, what are these stories? And some of you may be already familiar with them, but I'm gonna try and give you a context that you may not have considered before. In Acts chapter 8, verses 25 through 39, We have the story of Philip, who has just left Samaria, by the way, and he is called to meet an Ethiopian on the road. And it says it this way, the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so if you're not familiar with the layout of the Holy Land, it might be good to look that up on the Internet right now, just so you get a picture. I'll put a link in the show notes to a map that shows some of these uh, distinctions and locations. But this is the first road narrative. Acts 8, 25 through 39, it's the Ethiopian traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Then in Acts 9, 1 through 31, we have the story of Jesus appearing to Saul, who was traveling on the road to Damascus. Directly following that story, we have in Acts 10, 1 through 48, the whole chapter, we hear the story of Cornelius and Peter. And that story involves the road between Joppa and Caesarea. It's a road that follows the Mediterranean coastline. So, three road narratives. You might be familiar with one, or maybe all of these stories, but if you've only read them as separate events, you likely may have missed their thematic significance in the bigger narrative. And for this significance, this theme that Luke is tapping into, We need to go all the way back to the story of Noah and the flood, because Noah had three sons that were on the ark with him. Their names were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And after the Tower of Babel incident, the descendants of these three sons largely settled each of the three main continents known at the time, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And so their map would not look like our maps today. We have a more sophisticated understanding of what the world is and how it looks. But from their perspective, there were three main continents. If you're not familiar with uh, a TNO map, and I'm guessing you probably aren't, it's a map from about the 7th century that depicted this type of understanding of the earth. I'll put a link in the show notes to TNO maps uh, on Wikipedia. You can just Google it and look at images and a bunch of different ones will pop up for you. And these maps, uh, these TNO maps show and express the early understanding that the descendants of Ham settled in Africa. The descendants of Japheth landed in Europe and Shem's descendants settled in the East in Asia. And for a long time, That's how people thought about the world. And when we come to the book of Acts, which is all about the witness of Jesus reaching the extent of the known world, Luke gives us three road narratives, and the three roads are leading to these three continents. And here's the crazy thing. The people on these roads are descendants of the three sons of Noah. These are three individual people that represent much larger groups. So first, in the biblical narrative, the Ethiopian is from Africa. That's where Ethiopia is. He's traveling from Jerusalem to Gaza. That's the road that leads back to his home in Africa. He is a descendant of Ham. Saul, the next one, in Acts 9, he's traveling on the road to Damascus. He's just left Jerusalem, and he's heading east toward Asia. Saul is a descendant of Shem. And you might say, how do you know that? Well, Saul's a Jew. He is a descendant, therefore, of Abraham. And at the end of Genesis 11, right after the Tower of Babel story, the descendants of Shem are listed, and it connects Abraham to Shem. So in other words, biblically speaking, Abraham was a Shemite, and that term may be totally unfamiliar, Shemite, but you might recognize it if we drop the H. Abraham was a Semite, a descendant of Shem. That's how it's landed into our language. And it's unfortunate that the way most people are familiar with this term today is when we add anti to the beginning, anti-Semite. That's someone who is against, anti, the descendants of Shem. And in our modern context, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it describes the Jews. So in the biblical narrative, we have the Ethiopian descended from Ham, Saul descended from Shem, and the last road narrative concerns Cornelius, who was Italian. In other words, he's from Europe. (laughs) And he is a descendant of Japheth. So Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has stacked three road narratives within this story. And they tell the story of three individuals, but much more than just those three. He's telling the story of how the gospel spread to the remotest part of the earth. Another interesting thing that scholars have noticed about the relationship between the gospel of Luke and his second book, the book of Acts, is that it follows a similar progression. In other words, there are events in similar positions that kind of reflect each other in both books. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. As we go through Acts, I'll mention these as I see them and as others have pointed them out to me. But just to give you an idea what we're talking about At the beginning of Luke's gospel, he includes, in chapter 3, a story of John the Baptist preaching and then baptizing Jesus. And at that event, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus. And John the Baptist talks about how he baptizes with water, but one is coming who is mightier than him, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then later in that same chapter, as John the Baptist is baptizing people, Jesus is also baptized, and the heavens are open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. So there's a descending of the Spirit early in Luke's gospel. And if you flip over then to the book of Acts, what happens early in the book of Acts? It's the descending of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And we are to read those and notice the parallelism, the placement within the books of the Holy Spirit descending. I'll just give you one more example of this. Shortly after Jesus' baptism, uh, in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, Jesus uh, starts public ministry up in Galilee, and he is in Nazareth, his hometown, And you know the story. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he is one of the readers for the day. He's handed the Isaiah scroll. And it's interesting because the passage that he turns to, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Let me just ask you this. What is good news if you're poor? Well, (laughs) good news is you're not poor anymore. But Jesus isn't talking about finances. Jesus is talking about the condition of your spirit and your soul. So he's reading Isaiah, which says, He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And you might not understand the context of that Isaiah passage, but Isaiah is speaking of a fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, I'm not going to go into great detail, but the year of Jubilee was this incredible celebration that was supposed to happen every 50th year. And one of the things that happens in the year of Jubilee that Jesus then claims to be the fulfillment of, because right after he reads this, he sits down and he looks at everybody in the synagogue and he says to them, today, that thing I just read to you, that scripture, it's been fulfilled in your hearing. So what's Jesus? Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. One of the things that happened in the year of Jubilee is that all the land that was originally apportioned to the tribes, if it had been sold or passed on to somebody else for whatever reason, every 50th year, the land was supposed to go back to its original owners, the descendants of its original owners, tribe by tribe. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, announces that he is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. year of Jubilee is not just only about resetting the clock with the land ownership, but it's also about sharing everything. Crops, everybody has access to all the crops because they're just growing naturally that year because we're taking a year off. That's part of the reason it's gospel to the poor, because everybody's on similar footing in the year of Jubilee. People are sharing with everybody else. It's supposed to be this picture of what it would have been like in the Garden of Eden had the fall never occurred. Adam and Eve start having kids, large families start developing, and along the way, everybody is sharing stuff. Everybody makes sure everybody has enough. And Jesus proclaims that he's the fulfillment of that idea in Luke chapter 4. And you might wonder, what's the parallel then as we go to the book of Acts? Some of you have already made the connection. In Acts chapter 4, at the very end of that chapter, verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. We read this as a prescription. I mean, practically, nobody does this with all of their possessions. But that's not what Luke is trying to tell us. He's not trying to tell us we need to act prescriptively, like they did there in Jerusalem at the beginning. What Luke is doing is he's tying together this picture of what the year of Jubilee fulfillment through the followers of Jesus actually looks like. And Luke finishes chapter 4 of Acts this way. He talks about Barnabas, who was a Levite, and who owned a tract of land. What did he do with it? He sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is a fulfillment of the Jubilee idea. And by the way, Israel, even though they had been told every 50th year to do this, they never actually did it. So that's why this is such a strange thing happening in the land of Israel, because it's kind of prescribed like the year of Jubilee, but they'd never seen anything like this in the land. And it leads into chapter five, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? Well, they sold a piece of land, and they claimed to give all of the money that they made from that sale to that group of believers in Jerusalem, but secretly they held a little back. That's not the idea that Jesus is fulfilling. That's not the picture of Jubilee, and their fate was that they lost their lives. He dealt harshly with them as the first breakers of this new covenant. Pictures are very important for Jesus the way we live our lives here on earth as representatives of him, as believers in him, it's highly important that we reflect that which we follow. And at least for Ananias and Sapphira, here early in the book of Acts, Luke is tying their actions in with Jesus' fulfillment of a time and a land where everything is shared equally. There are other themes that Luke also follows in his telling of how the gospel was spread. And there are some surprising things that are shown. Just for instance, there are three examples of people speaking in tongues. And even though the first one happens in Jerusalem, those that speak in tongues are from Galilee. And everyone that understands them are not from Judea. They are from the remotest parts of the earth. And so, even early in Acts chapter 2, what we think is something happening in Jerusalem because of its location, it is involving people from the remotest parts of the earth. And so, Luke, maybe even following the prescription of chapter 1, verse 8, he even mixes that up a little bit. And immediately, the gospel is going out to the remotest parts of the earth as soon as those people in Jerusalem for the feast Leave and go back home. Word is already being spread, even before Paul goes on his missionary journeys. Well, that's about all I've got for today, but I just want to let you know I'm super excited about jumping into this Book of Acts study. It'll be interesting and interactive, and again, my goal is always to propose ideas that get you to rethink what you thought you already knew about the Bible. And we're going to do that for the book of Acts. And don't forget to make your way over to rethinkingrest.com, my book's website. I've got that website fully built out waiting for the book's launch day. And if you click on the book tab, you get to see that book cover, read a little bit about the book and possibly a little excerpt if you want to. Well, thanks again for listening. And please take some time this week, maybe even today, maybe even right now to rate this podcast, give it a review. But even if you don't do those things, please recommend to your friends, the Rethinking Scripture podcast.